Thank you very much for the lovely introduction. I've actually finished my postdoc at Oxford at the end of February. So if you're looking for me, I'm not there right now. <laughs> I also feel very short. But uh, here we go. So seniority experience and on-the-job training at British Naval Hospitals from 1775 to 1815. Naval forces have long relied on women to provide basic nursing work, including patient care and the maintenance of cleanliness. In the early 18th century, there were two options for naval nursing care. Town quarters, wherein sick and injured seamen were lodged and nursed in private homes. This was also known as sick quarters. And after 1703, hired hospitals established on a contract-by-contract -contract basis. By the middle of the 18th century, nursing arrangements became more formalized. As Hasler and Plymouth Naval Hospitals opened at Portsmouth and Plymouth in the 1750s and 1760s. With regard to nursing care, it was generally understood that nurses should be found for tending to the sick. There were no specific requirements or clear instructions on who should be hired to provide care until the War of Austrian Succession in the 1740s. These instructions and the ones that followed throughout the 18th century laid the groundwork for a complex nursing workforce that would grow to include hundreds of women. This paper will examine the equally complex system of seniority among nurses that encouraged those familiar with the naval system regulations, and sailor patients to provide on-the-job training for New Year's Some historians have argued that the household was the universal model through which early modern contemporaries conceived of medical care. For example, Deborah Harkness's discussion of London hospitals in the Elizabethan era directly compared the role of matron to, quote, an Elizabethan housewife within the home. Like the naval hospitals 200 years later, the matron and nursing sisters at St. Bartholomew's and St. Thomas's hospitals lived within the walls. Even within the institutionalized settings of poor hospitals and workhouses, basic care work was firmly in the hands of women who were viewed both by society in general and medical practitioners in particular as having by nature of their gender the requisite skills for medical work through their training and household work. Historian Mary Vassal characterized women as, quote, central to health and healing before 1800. This idea was tied to women's body work within their or their employer's households whether small or large. Considering the naval hospital as a large household reinforces the centrality of women's work to the provision of naval health care within the fixed space of the ward and connects their domestic labor within the hospital to the interests of the fiscal naval state. Women's work at naval hospitals was reflected within a large assortment of source material generated by the hospitals and the Royal Navy. Payments, official correspondence, paperwork, and petitions. However, we lack a comparable amount of source material produced by nurses themselves. A post-apocryphal approach compensates for this imbalance and permits a richer and more nuanced analysis of nurses and nursing in naval hospitals. This method allows for the study of common characteristics of a particular group, often quite large, and in this case, nurses. Much of this paper's analysis is based on naval hospital pay lists on which the Royal Navy recorded at monthly intervals its hospital personnel and their pay. Payless indicates start and end dates for employment, sick leave, and limited biographical information. This mostly quantitative data was entered into an online database, which I built. And I used SQL queries or SQL queries to collect details about nursing careers, the typical length of employment, the percentage of discharges, and the number of sick days. These kinds of statistics also reveal how quickly the hospital reacted to outside influences, such as rapid mobilization at the beginning of a war or in the aftermath of major battles. 
in an approach similar to that used by Sue Hawkins in nursing and women's labor in the 19th century, I merge qualitative information from letters and reports with particular case studies to demonstrate the effects of the needs of the state on individual nurses and to underscore how these necessities often meant bending official regulations. The survival of the memorandum book and private minute book of Governor Crikey from 1795 to 1799 allowed me to focus my analysis on Plymouth and forego a detailed examination of Hazlitt, which was in Portsmouth. The combination of quantitative data and case studies allows me to consider the nursing occupation at naval hospitals as a whole and to reconstruct the hospital household. The analysis underscores the significance of these women to the functioning of the hospital while providing a nuanced understanding of nurses' collective enterprise through the work of individual nurses. So here's a snapshot of the numbers of nurses that worked per month at Plymouth from when the pay list began in July of 1777 to December of 1799. For reference, here's the end of the American Revolutionary War, after which there's a decrease in the number of nurses to a relatively stable peacetime footing. This circle shows an increase in the number of nurses during the armament of 1790. This is the spike of the start of the French Revolutionary War. And you can see here the after effects of battles, as in this case of the glorious 1st of June. Within both naval hospitals, individual wards were strictly organized by medical officers. Patients were grouped according to their symptoms or diseases. Those who were most contagious were placed on the top floor, and you can see the elevation here in this depiction of Hasler. While those with surgical or non-contagious diseases resided on the middle floor. The ground floor was for convalescent patients who would benefit from supervised walkways around the hospital. From at least 1804, patients were split into surgical and physical wards. Though there are indications that this separation existed earlier in the 1790s, and I'll discuss that a bit later. Each ward would be staffed by at least two nurses, ideally with the presence of an experienced nurse in each ward to facilitate the training of new nurses who entered the hospital. Within all these ward divisions, patients were also classed by rank. Petty officers and midshipmen would complain to the sick at her ward if they could not be housed in a ward suitable to their station. They often petitioned to be housed outside the hospital in private sick quarters. Grouping men by symptom and rank encouraged a sense of home and shipboard-like regularity. In the 1808 instructions, this was codified with the stipulation to both physicians and surgeons that you are not to place officers in the same ward or cabin who are not accustomed to mess and associate together on board His Majesty's ships, nor officers nor other persons who walk the quarterdeck in the same ward with inferior patients. Furthermore, medical practitioners grouping patients together by similar symptoms and stages of healing probably created social bonds through simple acts of eating and commiserating about their conditions together. In the strictest definition used by Samuel Johnson in his Dictionary of the English Language from 1755, the word acted as, quote, a family, because its inhabitants lived in the same household. Despite being regularly in motion, patients who had spent time in the same ward often retained ties they had made there. For example, the escape of two men from their ward on the 9th of July, 1797, was, according to them, not to run from the hospital, but to, quote, talk with their friends at the window of another building. The validity of the men's claims can be questioned, but their story was still deemed probable, and the matter was closed without punishment. 
Populating wards by sailors' symptoms or diseases as well as their progress toward health meant that the mini household of the ward was in a constant state of flux. A report from Hasler in July of 1780 described the sick in motion. No ward has the same men in it for two days together. When a man recovers in a fever ward, he is immediately sent to a convalescent one. If he relapses, he is sent back to a fever ward, not perhaps to the one he came from, but to whatever ward there may be a vacancy in. The same continual fluctuation happens in chronic and surgery wards, so that in the course of one month, a man may have passed through five or six wards. This system of ward management was seen by medical practitioners as best medical practice in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, even if it caused increased work for the agent and steward of the hospital. Justification for moving the sick from ward to ward was twofold. First, it prevented overcrowding, the largest and most easily prevented threat to medical care. And second, this method allowed nurses to develop specialized skills, even if these skills were acquired only through on-the-job training. Nurse Jane Butler, for instance, was discharged from the hospital on the 2nd of June, 1796, when, quote, she refused to be transferred to a surgical ward. And you can see her discharge here in the red line. She was rehired in January of 1797 and does not reappear in Crikey's memorandum book, suggesting that she did nothing during her continued service worthy to remark upon. The division of nurses into broad categories of physical and surgical, and the fact that the hospital establishment was then carrying extra nurses on their books at the request of physicians and surgeons, demonstrates that nurses were valued by medical officers for distinct skills. Surgical nurses likely had a greater facility in wound care and the after effects of limb amputation, while physical nurses were more proficient in dealing with fever care. Regulations aimed at nurses at the Naval Hospitals also demonstrated the explicit attempt to ensure that the nurses who worked at the hospital were the most skilled available. Nurses who had worked in wards that were ordered to be closed in order to be shifted, which was a process of intense cleaning, humidation, and ventilation before the reception of more sick sailors, were not to be discharged from the hospital. Instead, they were, quote, to be employed as assistants in those most sickly, in order to lessen the load of nurses and wards with significant numbers of sick. This practice ensured that both the needs of the patients could be more adequately met and that nurses remained on the hospital books. Furthermore, if nurses needed to be let go due to a reduction in the numbers of patients, the sick and her board directed the physician and counsel to discharge those with shorter terms of service. We would always have those who have been longest in service enjoy the benefit of employment, as long as there were no faults in their, quote, conduct or ability. These staffing policies resulted in a stable core of experienced nurse employees who were a crucial component of an otherwise constantly fluctuating nursing workforce. Even during a peacetime reduction of nurses from 1783 to 1794, the time between the American Revolution and the outbreak of the French Revolutionary Wars, Institutional memory about nursing work would be maintained and facilitate on-the-job training for incoming nurses. The importance of nurse seniority to hospital administrators is shown through the payless records themselves. After 1756, nurses were paid monthly and were added to the same payless as those for the assistant surgeons. In addition to our order to you of the 25th instant, you are hereby directed and required to pay the nurses employed at blank, and you would fill in the name of the hospital here, their salaries monthly. In the same manner, you are directed by the said order to pay assistant surgeons, etc. 
This directive replaced an order from 1755 which allowed for nurses to be paid daily wages and kept under a separate heading in the disbursements table of the hospital agent. The order in which nurses were entered in the monthly payless records corresponded with the order in which the nurses had entered hospital service. And I'll offer a few examples of that system of practice here. The disbursements table from Plymouth Naval Hospital for the month of, set of February 1782 lists Elizabeth Archer first among the nurses, which matched her place as a nurse with the longest employment. The nurses who follow in the list were also entered in the order of their entry into the hospital as nurses. The order of the names did not change when a nurse was sick or put on half pay due to her superannuation, as can be seen in the case of Judith Gill here. The death of a nurse, as in the case of Rachel Adams, who was discharged dead from the hospital on the 15th of February, 1782, meant that the nurse below her on the list rose in seniority, and you can see that. However, if a nurse left the hospital due to her discharge uh, during a period of staff production, when she returned, she was entered as a completely new nurse. This procedure was likely for the ease of record keeping in the Payless ledger itself. For example, in August of 1794, Nurse Jane Edgecombe worked eight days before her discharge from Plymouth Naval Hospital. Her position in the Payless was between Anne Flynn, who was also discharged on August 8th, and Elizabeth Beveridge, who worked into September. Even with the discharge of many nurses who had been below her in the pay list, Edgecombe still fell five positions in the order of seniority and was subsequently below Sarah McNaught. This practice of listing nurses' seniority also was summarized in the regulations issued by the Admiralty to the hospital governors in 1803. As superannuation was extended to nurses and laborers of hospitals, that a certain time of servitude should be necessary to enable them her thereto, during which time, if they be discharged for misdemeanor, they shall never be re-entered, and that if discharged at their own request or from any other cause, then the necessary reduction of the establishment and re-entered their former time shall be taken for nothing, and that at each time of their discharge, a certificate shall be sent to this office signed by yourself, a physician or surgeon, and a steward or agent expressing the cause, which will be entered in a book kept for that purpose. Thus, according to the official instructions, the only way for a nurse to keep her seniority was if she was discharged as part of a general workforce reduction. Yet, payless records from the period after December 1803 show that, in fact, the practice of listing by seniority continued much the same as it had before this instruction. For example, nurses who went on leave but were not discharged maintained their seniority. It was only those nurses who were discharged for leave, not simply docked their pay for time missed, who gave up their order in the ranks. Another aspect of respecting the experience of nurses and the desire to keep the best nurses employed was the fact that they were given medical care when ill. This was part of a much more general provision of medical care to all servants of the hospital. The regulations for providing sick and hurt nurses with care in the hospital did not change substantially from their first introduction in 1763 uh, until when the first printed instructions were issued in 1808. When sickness or hurt shall prevent any of the laborers, nurses, washerwomen, or other servants of the hospital from performing their duty, they are to be received into the wards as patients and checked in half their pay. During the time they may continue sick, provided the same shall not exceed 30 days. But such as remain sick beyond that time are to be checked of their whole pay, while they may afterwards continue so. 
and you are to cause proper information to be given to the commissioners aforesaid at the probable time that will be still required for their recovery, in order that they may determine what may be necessary to be done on the occasion. I suggest that the lack of change in regulatory structure of the care for sick and wounded nurses represents an enduring commitment of the Navy to care for its civilian hospital personnel, including nurses and other female laborers. The obligation of the Navy to care for sick nurses and other hospital servants can be seen in the very fabric of their institutional structures, namely the buildings themselves. Hospital plans from Plymouth from 1796 devote one half of a three-story ward building to, quote, laborers' wards. The three separate wards suggest that it was possible for male and female servants to receive care in male and female wards, similar to the practices of civilian hospitals. The plans for the Naval Hospital at Fort Mahone in New York from the mid-18th century also list a nurse's ward. The plans for Great Yarmouth Hospital, which was constructed during the Colonic Wars, list a specific ward for nurses who are sick. And between July of 1777 and December of 1799 inclusive, nurses at Plymouth Naval Hospital were sick for 11,425 days, or 3% of the 352,531 days that nurses worked in that time frame. Although 3% seems like a small amount of sick days, it does represent a significant investment in medical care for nurses. Furthermore, it includes many nurses who were kept in sick wards beyond the 28-day and later 38-day provision of regulations. In conclusion, the decision to record nurses' names by seniority and by 1808 to record the wards in which they worked demonstrates that they were valued as individuals with specialized skills. While the provision of medical care to those nurses who were ill would allow those experienced nurses to return to work when cured. The system of seniority and on-the-job training that developed in the 18th century naval hospitals was beneficial to the patients nursed, but also to the wider naval establishment. Skilled nurses were valuable in a monetary sense. The quicker a sick or wounded sailor returned to his ship, the better it was for the Royal Navy, both in terms of lost manpower and the cost of care. Within this framework, the rehiring of certain nurses in times of high patient numbers can be viewed not only as a matter of convenience, but as a mark of their perceived individual ability. Naval hospitals, with their standing mandate to care for sick and wounded seamen, whether at peace or at war, valued their nurses as individual skilled workers and paid them well. <laughs> Thank you.